This is Katie Dunleavy with My Chronic Illness and Me. As someone who's struggled with chronic illness for more than 15 years, I've often felt incredibly isolated in my journey. Now, as a coach for others dealing with chronic illness, I've realized I'm not alone in feeling that way. There just aren't a lot of forums out there where people can connect about their experiences with chronic illness. So this is that space, a place where we can educate each other about different illnesses, dispel myths, and most importantly, share our stories. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, today I'm talking to Catherine, who's a corporate lawyer and a mom of two who was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in her early 20s. We talk a lot about what it was like to get that kind of a diagnosis at such a young age and about the difficulties she's had disclosing her disease to the people in her life. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Katie. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on. We just met sort of virtually recently. So it's really nice to talk to you about this stuff. It's nice to connect and it's nice to hear when other people are vocal about their medical or chronic illnesses that they have. And I've had the chance to listen to some of your podcasts and I really appreciated it. It was nice. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for being willing to share your story. So I like to just start out by asking people to tell me a little bit about themselves. Let's see. So I am a mom to two beautiful little girls. I am a corporate attorney. I really enjoy my job. I like to get outside and do a lot of outdoor activities. I love to cook. I love art. I'm a person of many interests and I just love to immerse myself in all of them. I'm always trying to learn. I just try to enjoy life. It's been really fun. Nice. How old are your girls? They are six and nine. Oh, that's so sweet. Um, ages. I was talking to some friends and they're like, this is really like the sweet spot in life. Like they're for so their sweet. ages. The ages because you can travel, they can do things for themselves and they're not, you know, they're, they're a little bit tween. They're almost teenagers, but not yet. So they're still just like little sweethearts. And it's a really, really sweet age in life. Oh, that's really sweet. Are they friends with each other? Like, are they close? They're really, really close. They're little besties with each other. Yes. (laughs) And they really play well together and they always are looking out for each other. It's so cute. Oh, that must make you so proud as a mom to see that. It does. I'm so proud of them. They just like, they try their hardest at everything. It's just fun to see them grow and learn. That's one of my favorite things in life is like being their teacher. My parents always thought I was going to be a teacher growing up. And so I guess I get to teach my kids. So it's so much fun. I really enjoy it. (laughs) Nice. When you said you like to cook, what kind of things do you like to cook? Um, I try to cook mostly healthy food. I love fish because it cooks really easily. It's quick and yummy. It's like very little effort for like a gourmet dish. I feel like in college and law school, I watched so much cooking channel that I know kind of like the ratios of what works. And so I kind of just like throw a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I would say the fan favorites for my kids are, of course, like tacos, nachos, stuff like that. They also like (laughs) uh, shrimp, uh, I guess the shrimp taco or um, shrimp scampi or are fan favorites of my kids. They're pretty adventurous eaters. Yum. I've always loved to cook, but I got like particularly more into it during the pandemic because I was not working. I had like quit my job right before 
the pandemic really started. And so then I just decided to like use my creative outlet by cooking. And so it's like one of my favorite things to do too. So how did chronic illness enter the picture for you? Tell us a little bit about your situation. So chronic illness entered the picture in my 20s, really the prime of my life, which was kind of sad. I remember I had this like amazing birthday party that like 50 of my friends went to and it was so much fun. And I was just like working hard and partying hard. And just <laughs> like, I was also training for my first triathlon because I've oh my gosh. Been, yeah, I've always been really sporty. I'm just the person that like, obviously did everything. And I really burned the candle at both ends all the time. And my motto was, <laughs> I forget what my motto was, but it was something like, I'll just like live till I die. You know, it was just like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to keep going. And I don't know, maybe that played into my health. But then all of a sudden, in my 20s, I started, I had a little blur in my vision, in my left field of vision. And I went to my eye doctor and they said, oh, it's a, like probably a migraine, like an eye migraine apparently you can have. And so I said, okay. And I said, well, I'm doing a triathlon tomorrow. Like, should I still do the race? And they're like, oh yeah, shouldn't be a problem. Like just rest today. And I remember calling my boyfriend at the time and I was like, oh, I'm taking off work early. Cause we were like driving up to do the triathlon. And I was like, so I'm ready to go whenever. Like I wasn't, I mean, even though I had like a line of vision that I couldn't really see, it was like a bright blur. So then the next day we did the triathlon and by the end of the triathlon, which I came in fifth, my whole left field of vision was like gone. Oh my gosh. So you couldn't not see out of your left eye basically. Yeah. So, and really any light felt like it was like attacking me. And so then it was, so then obviously my eye doctor was closed because it was the weekend. So then that Monday I went to the next appointment and was referred to an optic neurologist and a retina specialist. So it was either detached retina or brain tumor. I was told when you lose your vision like that. And it was very scary. And then at the neurologist, I guess retina came back fine went to the optic neurologist that was the brain tumor check and they sent me to an MRI and the MRI came back. And I remember I was there in the doctor's office by myself. And the doctor was like, so, you know, the MRI showed that you have several lesions on your brain, which means it's multiple sclerosis. And my aunt had had multiple sclerosis and she did really well with it. And one of my friends growing up, her mom had multiple sclerosis and her mom was in a home and in a wheelchair. Oh, wow. So those are my two frames of reference. And so, I mean, I just started bawling and, you know, they give you like the paperwork, like here's the paperwork that explains multiple sclerosis and it just feels like your life ends. So, yeah. And then I remember I walked out, my dad had driven me because obviously I couldn't drive myself because I was half blind. And he was like, what happened? And I just, he got like all of the emotions and my poor dad, he's like, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. And then we called my mom in the car. I remember my mom was like, that's not true. That's not right. And I was Like, like, you don't have that. Yeah, exactly. Because she wasn't there. 
because she didn't want me to have that. And actually she was in denial for like quite some time because like she, she was not there for the diagnosis. She didn't want me to have it. It's tough for people to accept. She didn't want to accept that about her darling daughter having that. And it actually, my aunt had kind of hidden her diagnosis for almost 20 years. And my aunt had like just started to have more issues with her diagnosis and had like just come out that she had multiple sclerosis. And so it was just kind of like, what? No, you know? (laughs) So anyway, so that was how it started. So that was quite some time ago. It really is, it's a constant like learning and grieving process of life. I cannot imagine being in your 20s in like the prime of your life. You know, like you said, you just did a triathlon. You came in fifth, like you're working hard and living, basically just living your life, right? Like you're a 20 year old. You're not worried about these big things. I can't imagine sitting alone in a doctor's office and getting a diagnosis like that. It feels like the worst place (laughs) to be alone and have that kind of news delivered to you. It was pretty crazy. (laughs) Like It was. I don't recall if I like asked my dad to come in. I don't know what I was really expecting because it wasn't going to be good news. I mean, it was going to be a brain tumor or something. Or who knows what other news it could have been. But it was interesting kind of how it transpired after that because I feel like maybe the fact that I had the optic neurologist who was giving the diagnosis, I mean, he, he must give the diagnosis a lot because optic neuritis as the first symptom of MS is pretty textbook. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people have eye conditions because I guess that nerve is more sensitive. So I could have had other things going on. Actually, I had a few months before that, I thought I had carpal tunnel. And like, I was really having a lot of issues with my hand and my wrist. And I thought I was doing like repeated process of just like flipping through file after file from my work. And so I mm. thought it was carpal tunnel, but that could have actually been my first MS sign. Who knows? Oh, wow. um, I had low vitamin D for like nine months before that. And low vitamin D is a sign of multiple sclerosis. And I didn't listen to my doctor's recommendation to take my vitamin D which sometimes taking a higher dose of vitamin D or making sure that your vitamin D is where it needs to be wards off the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. So, I mean, that's, I didn't listen to doctor's orders and then kicked, I mean, it probably would have happened anyway, maybe later, but you know, there were signs that I just didn't see that something like this was brewing and then just combusted and it really took me out. And so the next, the treatment for that is they put you on a a high dose of steroids. So that was kind of the next step. Yeah. Yeah. I actually was just thinking about the vitamin D thing because I didn't realize that. I watched a quick like Mayo Clinic video about MS before we talked just because I knew a little bit about it, but I didn't know that much. And I wanted to have a background. I had no idea about the vitamin D thing, but like, I feel like almost all of us get Told like, oh, your vitamin D is low. Have some, take some vitamins. And I, I mean, it's understandable that you wouldn't have necessarily flagged that as something 
important. I mean, I thought it was just a vitamin. Yeah. Oh, right. Exactly. I can take a multivitamin or not take a multivitamin. Like I didn't think it was that important, but yes, your doctor tells you your vitamin D is low and you take it, take it because it does. it's, It's amazing how much it helps your systems run and things like that. Yeah. So were the steroids to help with your eye problem specifically, or is it like they put you on steroids and that's sort of like a continuing treatment? How does that work? So basically, since it's an autoimmune disease, you're, it's, you have, and I'm not a doctor, but you know, I've gone through this, so I've had to learn a lot, which I like science and I like learning stuff like this, but I wish I was learning it under different circumstances. I know, right? So you have something called the blood brain barrier, which is normally closed, right? In an autoimmune disease, it opens up and basically your white blood cells and your attackers go through that blood brain barrier and basically start attacking your nerves in your, in your central nervous system. So the steroids close back the blood brain barrier. So that's the point of the steroids. And that's why they put you on a pretty high dose of steroids to start because they just want to close that off and make sure that the current attack and the current inflammation is not getting to your brain and spinal cord. So they so it was three days of intravenous steroids, and then you step down on oral steroids. However, and this is interesting, the optic neurologist really, really overdosed me on steroids. Oh, geez. I was going to say, because steroids can really mess with your body. Oh, it, it messed with my body. He gave me a prescription that like a 300-pound man Oh, wow. Yes. And I was a 20 something year old who just did a triathlon. I was maybe 135 pounds, you know, very fit, 20 year old woman. (laughs) And I'm taking this huge dose of steroids. And let me tell you, like, I didn't know what was going on, right? I didn't know how much of it was MS. Later on, Mm -hmm. I found out that a lot of the symptoms were because of the so called cure of steroids. Like, I. And most people gain weight on steroids, right? I lost, mm-hmm. I dropped, I quickly dropped like 15 pounds. Wow. Because I had like acid reflux. I couldn't, I just felt like I couldn't eat. I had like the steroids moon face. I had difficulty walking. I had very extremely low energy and I didn't know what was MS and what was steroids. And coming off the steroids, I know what withdrawal is. I mean, I was just like shaking. I had, even though you slowly step down off mm-hmm. of the steroids, it was a very difficult withdrawal. And I was trying to like go, cause I was on the steroids for a while. Like you do the first three infusions, like back to back, like three days. And then you stay on, I don't know, a 20 day course of the steroids. And then you slowly oh, that's a long time. step down, I think. So yeah, it was too, too high and too long of a dose of steroids. And I tried to go back to work. I tried to go back to work like three days a week. And I remember just being in my like small windowless office, just like shaking, like in fetal position on the floor because I was coming off of these steroids. It was terrible. And, you know, I wanted to go back to work. I wanted to resume my normal life. And it was just crazy. And I didn't know what was causing any of this. I didn't know it was the steroids. I thought it was like MS that was causing this. It was crazy. Oh my God. That must have been so scary, like being young and and just having gotten this diagnosis. So to your point, you don't know what is the 
disease itself? What is the medication you've just been given? And like that, I can just imagine it might feel like, oh my God, like, is this just the rest of my life? Exactly. Is this the new normal? Like what in the heck is going on? And like, I did go to the National MS Society has like, I don't know, I hate to call them like welcome to MS, like small groups, but it kind of is. And it, yeah. and you have that small group. And so I did go to one of those kind of like group help things. And that did help, but still it's just like, I'm not a huge researcher, like outside of work. I'm not one of those people that like Googles everything. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm more oral, I guess I like to be told, but there's so much information out there and not all of it applies to you. And some, and you can't tell the good information from the bad information. And it's almost just like, and then MS is so different for every single person in the way that it operates. So you have to, you have to learn how it's going to affect and impact you. And I feel like it was almost like, it was a long learning cycle after that of what I can do and what I can't do and slowly like recuperating myself because additional symptoms popped up as well that I wasn't even told in my like, welcome to MS, National MS Society thing are pretty common symptoms of MS. Like I had to figure them out for myself. (laughs) So it's like, where's the playbook for this? Like, where's the rule book? I don't know. I mean, maybe I should make one, but you can't really (laughs) make one because it's so different for everybody. Yeah, that's so interesting because, so I have um, endometriosis, as I think you know from listening to the episodes. And I feel like there's so much having to navigate through the information in, in that. But in my mind, I'm like, oh, well, MS is such a more like established, researched, like sort of known entity. So it's like shocking and upsetting to hear that even with, with a, a chronic illness that's more, I don't know, known and, and there's more people working on it and et cetera, you still had that that experience of like, which information do I trust? How does this information apply to me or not? How do I like wade through all of this and figure out what works for me? It's really kind of just a bummer to realize that no matter what specific illness or disease that people are dealing with, there is this kind of constant element of like, I don't know, I just had to figure it out. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess MS is established. Like most people know of it. They, people, some people think it's contagious. I mean, it's really, mm. if you're going to tell somebody you have MS, you have to be very careful as to how they, ed- how you educate them about what it mm. is. People have heard of it, right? And, but it's not really that established. Like even amongst the medical community, I learned that it's very, very often misdiagnosed because really? it does, it does affect an impact so many different systems of your body because it's your nerves, which is your whole entire body. So you can have numbness and tingling. You can have difficulty breathing. You can have vascular problems. You can have optic neuritis. You can have urinary incontinence. Mm -hmm. You can have fecal incontinence. You can have almost, you can have rashes. I mean, you can have almost every single thing. And the crazy part was I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. And when I got to the West Coast, I started seeing a doctor at Stanford. And the first thing the doctor at Stanford did was they re-diagnosed me. I was like, wait a minute, I've had MS for 10 years. And they're like, no, it's so commonly misdiagnosed 
that we're going to go through all of your medical paperwork and run our own tests and make sure you have MS. And then like four weeks later, they were like, oh, you do have MS. And I was like, well, I already knew that. But apparently it's so misdiagnosed that to get into the Stanford MS program, which it wasn't even a clinic or program, it was just like their neurology department would treat me. They Mm -hmm. had to re-diagnose me. Well, that's shocking. When when you said it's often misdiagnosed, I thought you meant that like it often gets missed and diagnosed as something else. I didn't realize that also the other end of the spectrum, like people can be diagnosed, but not actually have it. People can be diagnosed with MS and have Lyme disease. That's a pretty common one. People can Jeez. be diagnosed with MS and have a peripheral nerve disease. People can be diagnosed with MS and have a different autoimmune disease. I mean, it is crazy. It's very difficult because it manifests in so many different ways. And one interesting thing that kind of has come out of COVID Mm -hmm. is that COVID is extremely similar to MS, particularly long COVID. Yes. And I realized this from the very beginning of COVID. And now there's, there's starting to be more medical papers and things written about it. There actually a paper came out of Harvard a few years ago that basically Um, And it was peer reviewed and everything that said like MS is long Epstein-Barr virus. Oh, which is that's what causes mono, right? Yeah. Yeah. So some people have a reaction to it. And I did have mono when I was 18. But it's weird because the typical time period that a person gets MS after having mono is several years later, right? Right. So it's like, how do those two things, how do you prove that? But most people with MS, they're starting to find out that they did have mono, but it's not everybody has documented that they have. It, it's so interesting, the whole yeah. the medical. But the one thing that I am actually hopeful for is because the type of vaccine that they did for COVID, I guess it's the MNR. What is it? The M- MSR no. something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that type of vaccine, they also are trying to make an Epstein-Barr vaccine. Oh, interesting. So, you know, hopefully maybe my family members can get that vaccine because MS does seem to run in my family. It definitely has a genetic component. My aunt has it. My uncle was diagnosed after me. Oh, wow. So like three of us have it. I hope that nobody else gets it. Take their vitamin D. (laughs) (laughs) So the Epstein-Barr vaccine would be to prevent mono, which mono is a risk factor for later developing MS. I guess you could call it that. I don't know what the proper medical term would be, but it could be. Yeah, I don't know if it would, I don't know how it would work with a risk factor or like Mm. component of potentially. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, but you don't have to have had mono to have MS, do you? They're starting to figure out that most people that have MS have had mono. Okay, interesting. I didn't but know I that think it hasn't been 100% proven. And sometimes, like I said, people will have MS and then they, they will have had mono, but it would not have been documented on their chart. Right. Like know, they didn't necessarily know they had it. Yeah. Like people yeah. that get COVID and like don't even know that they had it. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. So, I mean, oh, thinking back in terms of after your diagnosis and after dealing with the initial steroid treatment and the terrible, terrible withdrawal, how did you cope? Like, what did your life start to look like on a day-to-day basis after the initial, like, crisis? I did get better. I eventually switched my job to a less stressful job, which I was still working full-time. And at that point, I was like, can I work full-time? 
yeah. I didn't think I could. So imagine me, I'm like interviewing for a new job, which is a full-time job, but it seemed like it was like more chill. Yeah. And I was interviewing for this job and I was like, yeah, I can't work long hours. Like, <laughs> just saying what you think the person doesn't want to hear <laughs> yeah. in the interview. And I asked my boss and we had, a, I worked there after that for five years. And I had a great working relationship with my boss and a real, it was a great job for me. It was the perfect job for me. And I was like, why did you hire me? Because <laughs> in my interview, I was like, yep. I mean, I work hard when I'm at work, but I'm not going to take any work home from me. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> and he was like, you know, your resume was amazing. First of all, I knew you were really competent to do the job. And he was like, and you just seemed very matter of fact and was just like a decent person to work with. And I just thought it was going to be a great fit. And it was, and I was like, you're, yeah, it was a great fit. It was a great job. So <laughs> I changed my job and it really was a perfect fit. So that helped. And I slowly started doing more things. It was, like I said, things were popping up. Like I remember I went to a barbecue with my friend and I really had a lack of energy. So I would, I stopped going out. I really became a homebody. I'm a natural extrovert and I really became mm. an introvert. I was like watching more movies and stuff. I remember one doctor I went to, he was like, oh, because I guess it was going into the summer. And he's like, oh, watch movies. I'm like, I never in my life have watched movies. He's like, oh, but it's nice <laughs> and cool in the movie theater. Like you should just watch movies. And I'm like, I just can't do that. So I did. I, I just ratcheted down to what I could do. I remember mm-hmm. I went to the barbecue and normally I would be helping clean up, helping set food out. Like mm-hmm. my normal personality was just to be more engaged. And I remember I was just like sitting to the side. And at that point in time, I didn't know really how to tell friends. Like I wanted to tell people, normally I want to tell people when I'm like feeling like super inadequate or feeling like MS is getting in the way. And it's more for my benefit than it is for them, right? Because they don't really care that much. Like nobody mm-hmm. really wants to know about it. At least that's what I've found. I don't know mm-hmm. how you go about disclosing your illness, if it even needs to be disclosed. But like, I just do it at least at the beginning. Like I just felt really bad and it turned out like it was kind of hot that day. Right. And I was just having a terrible day. Like I, I had no energy. And yeah. so one of the main things about MS is heat sensitive. Oh, so okay. So I went to the doctor and they're like, oh Yeah. 80% of people with multiple sclerosis have issues with heat sensitivity. It's called Hoff syndrome. I was like, why didn't they tell me that in my playbook? It would have been nice to know. Oh my God. It's crazy because my aunt never, she had like a little bit of problems with heat sensitivity, but to me, heat sensitivity really, really extremely impacts my ability to like be a normal person. So not, not everybody has the extreme heat sensitivity, but like, it's just like things kept popping up like that. And then you like learn how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was making me think when you were talking about, you know, being in your 20s and and being an extrovert and having to change jobs to accommodate. And like, on the one hand, I'm so glad that you met the right person who saw your value and, and hired you and that that was a great fit. On the other hand, I was thinking like, it sucks as as in your 20s to have to go to an interview and be like, look... <laughs> A lot of us think of our 20s as the time when you are supposed to hustle, right? Like you put oh, in the time, 
Yeah, you put in the work and you kind of just do whatever you have to do. And then hopefully when you're a little older and more established and higher up the chain in your career, then they know that you're good at your what you do. So you can kind of like take those opportunities where you need them, right? But to have to sort of start out that way. And then from there, my brain was like, yeah, but what, who, like, why is that? That should never be a hurdle, right? Like if someone is like, oh, I want to do my job really well while I'm at work, that shouldn't ever be like, oh no, she's not a hard worker. She's not. There's so many cultures like that though. I was just, it was so lucky. I guess God was watching out for me that I ran into this company that had an amazing culture and it was an in-house position, which was great. So many companies, even like in-house there, they just have work you till you're dead cultures. Yeah. And that doesn't work for anybody, especially not women that have kids and things like this. And it's just, it's great that I've been in a culture like that because at the law firms that I worked at two law firms prior to that. And I wasn't, it was a very stressful, I was mergers and acquisitions and it was public and public mergers and acquisitions. And it was very difficult work, but it was like, Oh, you're sleeping at the office tonight. Great. Right. That's normal. It was normal. And it it was expected. It was expected that you bill 2,200 hours a year. I mean, it's just crazy. Or you should bill 2,600 if you really want to get your bonus. Oh my God. How can people be healthy with that? I think a lot lot of law firms need to change. But, you know, I'm not going to be on that soapbox for them. But it was refreshing. And really, it was a very effective company that does very well with this yeah. culture, you know, that treats people positively and correctly. Yeah. How is it? So you mentioned that, you know, you're naturally an extrovert and you like to be out and about and then having to sort of switch that to be more of a homebody because you just like physically didn't have the energy. How did that impact you emotionally? Oh, it was really tough. And I mean, I really think I married the wrong man. Because I was at that point in time, I was being a person that I was not. Mm. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes complete sense. Yeah. And it's too bad that that happened. But I had to be like masquerade as this person that I really was not. And it took me like several years to get myself back. And I still can do a lot. I learned over time, like, Okay, I have to take really good care of my body. I have to get the right amount of sleep. I have to eat the right foods. I have to make sure that I take time out to like take all my medications properly and everything like mm-hmm. that, which is tough. It's tough managing your illness. I don't know if you have difficulty with that. That is, oh, I yeah. wish I had like a personal manager that just <laughs> helped me manage my illness. I don't know if you offer those services. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it's funny that you say that because like the whole thing that I try to work with people on is how to bring their illness into balance with their life. Like I think a lot of people with chronic illness, and this totally includes myself, for years and years and years, I would sort of be all in with my pain and illness and trying to figure it out and taking really good care of myself and being a homebody and not going out and, you know, like basically putting my illness ahead of everything, going to all the doctor's appointments and tests and whatever. And then you just, to your point about like, not being who you are, you get burned out on just being like sick and not feeling well and being a patient. And so for me, and I think a lot of people, you kind of like wildly swing back the other way and are just like, I want to live my life. And 
and kind of forget about the aspect of like, oh, wait, I actually do also need to still take care of myself. So it's more for me working with people. It's about like, how do you bring those two things together instead of having them fight against each other, which is so hard. Yeah. At the beginning, I felt like I was like a little bit bipolar, right? Because when I was feeling good, I was going out and I was doing everything. And then when I was feeling bad, I was just like, and I was like, what am up and down and up and down. But I did have some great, eventually I had some great medical care. And I went to this amazing, a different neuro-ophthalmologist, or I don't know what the name is, at Georgetown. And he, because my eye was like still kind of bothering me when I tried to like work longer Mm. and push it, like Mm -hmm. I would start like letters would get a little wavy and I was just getting headaches by the end of the day. And he was like, that's fatigue. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't realize that. And he put me on this amazing medication called amantadine which really changed my life. And it just made, it, it made me able to become my old self. Oh, interesting. It was so very what, realizable. What does like, that do? Like what, what's its purpose? It is, you know what? They don't know exactly how it works. Okay. <laughs> well, and just, you know, as we had talked about before, like neither of us are medical professionals. And so my well, whole approach. Even, yeah. Medical professionals don't even know how it works, actually. It was an antiviral, right? That okay. originally was put out as something that you could take to protect against the flu. Then okay. they noticed that people who maybe had a chronic condition that took it for the flu seemed to get more energy. So they started doing like a second, I guess they did a second clinical trial or something. I don't know. And this is all like from a person that doesn't know that much about clinical trials, but is interested in it as an outsider. And then they, I guess they approved it for being an anti-fatigue medication. And it makes sense because MS is a virus and the antiviral might help. But it's interesting later on at Stanford, because I had had such a good, because amantadine worked so well for me. They just Mm -hmm. tried putting me because they're like a medical, you know, or they're like, they study and stuff like that. They tried putting me on like a huge dose of antiviral to see Uh if that would help. And it didn't. didn't. Interesting. I don't know. So the interesting thing also about amantadine was it worked really well for me for four years. And then it stopped? And and then it stopped. And I started having really bad side effects from it. And also, I mean, that might have been because I had kids and my body composition changed and I had to go off of it while I was pregnant. But then it pretty much stopped. So I don't take it anymore, but I don't need to, I don't take, and then I've taken other anti-fatigues, which is tough to figure out. Right now, I don't take an anti-fatigue. I drink lots of coffee, (laughs) (laughs) but I feel like I don't really need an anti-fatigue because taking the anti-fatigues, then you don't sleep. It's just, you know, you have this balance that you have to figure out what works. But amantadine was really an amazing drug. And I'm glad that it worked for me as long as it did. And it helped me start being my real self. I remember like my brother or some of my friends noticed. They're like, hey, you're back. And I was like, yeah, I'm back. (laughs) That's so funny that like you're back kind of thing. Because I I think about that all the time. I felt like I totally lost myself in my illness and pain for years. Like probably, I don't know. It take a long time. Five years more than that. Like just maybe slowly it happened, but. It's almost like for me, I don't know how you felt like I didn't really know I had lost myself until I was kind of like at rock bottom. And then I didn't even really fully know how much I had lost until I felt like myself again. I was what like, you like back? 
honestly, like quitting my job. And I mean, similarly, I changed my entire lifestyle. I worked with a coach who was amazing and helped me think about like, why am I doing things the way that I'm doing them? And how could I be doing them differently? And I took a long... I had a surgery and I took quite a long time to recover from it fully. And then I like slowly just started to think about like, okay, what does a life look like that is not just like burning the candle at both ends to what you to what you said before. So that's there was a time when I like felt like myself again and then was like, oh I forgot about her. Like I'm so glad she's back. Like I didn't realize how much I had not been myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's true. I mean you could completely lose yourself with MS you can decide to basically go to a doctor's appointment every day. Yeah. And I just don't like that. I don't like kind of like being sick, but at the same time, I have to put some time into being sick so that I can be well, you know? So it's hard to find that balance. And still a lot of times there's one treatment that really helps me with urinary incontinence, which is an acupuncture treatment. Oh, and I just keep forgetting to schedule it. This is why I need a personal assistant to just be on top of me. <laughs> because I don't know why. It's just because it's, it's not fun. I have to drive to put like an hour out, out of my day to do that treatment. And it does. It, it really helps me out. Like having that security of my bladder and knowing that I'm not going to have an accident. Because part of like when I don't take that treatment, I'm always like, where's the restroom? What do I need to do? Who am I going to see? What am I going to drink? Oh my gosh, I can't have alcohol. I can't have bubbles. I need to just drink water. I need to avoid lemons at all costs, like no dairy, all the things that cause incontinence. So it's like, why is it so difficult for me to just drive a half hour, have the treatment for a half hour and drive the half hour back? It should be easy. Why do you think it's so difficult? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like maybe there's a, an emotional component to it. Probably like, yes, it's, there is an emotional component to it because there's one place where I get like most of my treatments and it took me forever to like learn the directions to get there. And like, I know directions to other places, right? Mm -hmm. I think I really don't want to go there. (laughs) So I'm not going to learn the directions. That's such it. That makes total sense. Like, it sounds like there's an element of like, I wish I didn't have to do this. And so therefore my brain is, yeah, yeah. But like my brain is refusing to learn the directions because I just wish it weren't the case that I have to to go. I mean, now after four years, I know the directions, but it took me like longer than usual to like know the direction. (laughs) Well, and it sounds like with the acupuncture treatment, it's almost kind of like, between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, you know the treatment will will help you. And when you don't do it, it sounds like you there's a lot of like mental noise that comes with mm-hmm. with not yeah. doing it because you have yeah. to worry about all the things you just mentioned. But then on the other hand, you just, it sounds like you don't really want to go do it because it takes time out of your day and there's that component yeah. of like don't really want to be here. So yeah, that's really tricky. I know and this is crazy, but it's also thirty dollars a treatment. And I think, I mean, $30 is not that much money, but I'm just like, why do I have to pay this extra $30 twice a month? 
You know, I think that's something that like is hard to explain to people who don't have chronic illness is like that sort of like indignation sometimes of like, yeah, but like, what the hell? Like, why? <laughs> like, why do I have to deal with this? Like, you don't, uh, most people don't have to deal with this. Why do I have to deal with this? That I should just deal with it and get over it because it helps me. I need, I'll schedule that after the call. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to mention that treatment because it took me way too long to find that treatment. And also with the amantadine. Like, so these are, it's called the TENS treatment. It's very good. So yeah. those two treatments were amazing to me. You find stuff, but you don't know what's going to work for you. And I don't know. It's tough to know. To know what and to it's do a constantly evolving process too, right? Like to your point about amantadine, it worked for you great for four years and then all of a sudden didn't. So yeah. then you have to readjust and recalibrate. And it's a process of your new normal because it is like, what is it called? Degenerative disease. Mm -hmm. So things do get worse over time. And fortunately, I mean, I am able to, my Stanford doctor explained it pretty well. He's like, so there's your high water mark where mm -hmm. everything is below the surface. Like all of the MS symptoms are below the surface. But if your water level goes down and starts to drain a little bit because like, you stayed up too late, you're not eating healthy, you're not getting the proper like light exercise that you need to get, the water level starts to go down, and then your symptoms start to show. Mm. But, but one of my struggles is, is that since I have my heat sensitivity, exertion, like physical exertion, really starts to make my eye flare, which oh, is sad because I've always been really athletic. I was a star athlete in high school. I did actually, I did like four triathlons after I was diagnosed for, with MS. So I got back wow. into it. I did. And I love to swim. I can still swim because that's good. It keeps me like pretty cool. But running, I can't do biking. I can just like bike with my kids. I can't do any like aggressive biking. So mm -hmm. it's constantly kind of like a grieving process. And, and it's interesting because like my parents and some people are like, oh, well, that's just getting older. I'm like, yeah, this is like no. an accelerated getting older, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of, sometimes it feels like you're in like an 80 year old body because like, so one of the things that I could do if I wanted to be sick all the time is I have a, I guess a referral to a really intense physical therapy place. Mm -hmm. That one I don't think is covered by insurance, but I know someone who's 85 years old, who has Parkinson's, who goes there and loves it. And it's a great physical therapy place. Would I get something out of it? Yes. Do I want to go? Not really because it's far away. I have to pay out of pocket for it and I'll be surrounded by probably like 80 year olds. It's always just a sort of give and take, right? Between the trade-offs and the, the pros and cons. Yeah, sure. You'd probably get something out of it. Is it and would you get enough out of it to sort of offset the travel and the costs and the all the emotional components related to it? So it's, it's a constant equation, right, that you have to do of how much maintenance and wellness and care do I need and how much do I need to not do <laughs> to also feel well, right? Like sometimes yeah. it's healthy to take a break. And it's, you know, I think it's good to know those treatments are there and available and also 
that doesn't have to mean that you have to do them right now or all the time. You know, like it's, it's always just a choice. I'm curious about the, you mentioned earlier, like talking to people about MS and, and the fact that you have it and that sometimes you'll tell people when you feel inadequate or maybe, you know, you don't really want people to know. How do you think about that in your life now versus when you were younger? When I was younger, when I first was diagnosed, it was really difficult. I felt like I should tell my work because I had my first episode and I was missing a lot of work and I had to go on family medical leave. I almost wish I haven't, hadn't disclosed to that first job everything. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have just kept it closer. Then why, if you don't mind my asking, because they just like lost kind of like lost all faith in me as an employee Yeah, that I would be able to do anything, but obviously they can't fire you because you have a medical condition that you can get an accommodation for that. I could still work, but it made it like very difficult for me to continue at that company when they were trying to accommodate me. Accommodations were almost like suffocating accommodation. Like they had um, one yeah. person that had to give me all, all work through this one person. And, you know, that's just not, it wasn't an effective management system, but it was good that I was able to transfer jobs. Then I told you before I lost all that weight some of my friends, a group that I wasn't that close with, but it was kind of like a group of friends that I hung out with, mm-hmm. invited me over for drinks and hors d'oeuvres and like, I don't know, watching The Bachelor or something. I didn't realize I was walking into an intervention. I was walking into an eating disorder intervention. Oh <laughs> my God. Because I hadn't told them that I was diagnosed with MS and they just saw me just like drop a lot of weight, which still, I mean, BMI, I was still like on an acceptable weight. But I can't but, imagine none of them talked to you just one-on-one, like, hey, are no, you okay? It was like five-on-one. Yeah. What the but, No, it was like, it was very heartfelt. It was very like, we want to be there for you. Like, we want to know what's going on. Like, you haven't been eating. It was really hard. It was from a good place, right? Sure. <laughs> that is not... I totally believe that. And also, holy crap, I can't imagine like walking into that situation and just being like, uh, what? Like, why did none of you just privately be like, hey, are you okay? So I disclosed to that group and some people took it well and some people took it really poorly because people don't know and people are afraid. Some people are just afraid and I don't know. It's That was one of the worst situations. And some people, one person in particular took it like, really poorly. And we kind of lost our friendship. And that was probably one of the girls that I was kind of the closest with going into that. So yeah, so it was, that's, that was a good lesson because I was like, Oh, some people just can't, she couldn't deal with it. And some people just can't, you know, they think it's like, Oh, I don't know. Like, I guess I don't know what was in her head, but it seemed like it was like, Oh, I don't know the right thing to say. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say anything, you know? Yeah. And at that point, I was like pretty sick, right? I wasn't yeah. like right now, if I tell somebody, I'm like, fine. And people are like, oh, well, you deal with it really well. And I can say like, oh, I've had it for like however many years, like a long time. 
and they can be like, oh, wow, like power to you. Like you seem like you're doing really well. At that point in time, when it was early on, I was really sick and it was like, whoa, what's going to happen to you? Like, are you going to be in a wheelchair? Like what's, you're having difficulty walking. You lost a lot of weight. Like that was a scary time. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the first, so not only were you in the throes of the initial sort of like emergency situation, right? With your actual physical health, like first episode, then all this withdrawal and terrible symptoms from the medication. But then also it sounds like the first two sort of groups that you decided to share with both like really went in a really hard way. Like your work on paper was supporting you, but in reality, no. And your friend group staged an intervention instead of just talking to How do you think that impacted the way you or whether you disclose, like having those be your first two? Well, my second work, I did not disclose. And I really was tortured with that because at the point that I was interviewing, I did not know if I could do a full-time job. Mm -hmm. And then I actually needed to have a refrigerated medication delivered during the day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I couldn't, I was at work. I couldn't have it delivered to my home. So I had to have a refrigerated medication delivered to like the the office manager at that work where I had still not disclosed that I had a medical condition and they were fine. She was very good. She's like, she would always be like, Oh, your medication came today. Like I put it in the refrigerator. Oh, thanks so much. It was good. Then that work after I'd been there for like two years and really I didn't need to disclose because things were going really well. And so, like I said, I always have in the past disclosed when I felt like I was inadequate or I couldn't keep up or more for like my feeling than somebody else's need to know. Right. Mm -hmm. So then we had a barbecue, an outdoor barbecue. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really, I still had the very bad heat sensitivity. It was very hot evening and I had to basically stay inside and couldn't go outside. And they're Mm -hmm. like, what's wrong? You know, what's up? Like, why won't you go outside? And I was like, and I disclosed. Oh, wow. At the barbecue? Yeah. That must have been tricky. I don't know. I, like I felt like I should because mm-hmm. I couldn't go outside and like, who is this weird person that won't go outside and join the barbecue, but is there like, should I have just left the barbecue? I don't know. So then it's tough because then all of a sudden people are like, Oh my gosh, like, Whoa, that's a big thing. That's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, Ugh. and then everybody from work is like coming. Like it was like a group of like 30 people. Oh my gosh, we're so sorry to hear that. But at that point I had had it for like three or four years. And I could say like, oh, I've had this the whole entire time. You've known me, you know, it's been fine. And it, it was fine. It was just like an initial, but then they kind of, they have it in the back. Once you disclose to someone, the cat's out of the bag. And so they always have it in the back of their mind. Like I remember our, like one of our officers was, was like, oh, oh, we were going to have the lunch here, but well, they're thinking about you, right? Cause they care about you. And so he's like, but I don't know about like, is this okay? with the heat, you know, so it's good. It's nice to have people thinking about you, but like, they really can't turn it off. Right. It sounds like, yeah, I hear what you're saying. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like I, it almost sounds like, and and this is, I mean, it's different for every single person, how comfortable you are or not disclosing to different people or not. It almost sounds like just based on what you said about the feeling bad or inadequacy factor or being confronted, whether by your group of friends or your office workers not being able to go outside. It almost sounds like the way the disclosure process has happened for you has has been on the defense a lot. But I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What does that feel like I think to you? So, that's true. I mean, I would rather not disclose it because I feel like it affects the way that people, at least at the beginning, it affects the way that people think about you, I feel like. But then I have, I guess I have on the offense disclosed it a little bit now. But that really, people don't really want to know it or hear about it. Like if I do disclose it, everybody's like, oh, well, you're fine. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear about it. Yeah, I am fine. Great. So I don't know. I mean, like, do I disclose it because I want to get a gold medal? Or like... (laughs) throwing myself over the finish line where I'm like, (laughs) Oh, it's like impossible. I'm so fatigued right now. I need a gold medal for like participation in whatever like parent teacher thing I'm participating in. You know, is that why I disclose it? I don't know. I feel like it's probably best if I just didn't disclose it at all. It's interesting because like people, everybody has something going on, which you learn when you have a medical condition you learn it might be personal to them it might be a parent it might be a child like people have things and you become a lot more empathetic to the things and I'm fine hearing about people's things but I think all in all like most people I don't know if they they don't really want to hear it that much unless it matters unless they have to treat you differently you know I don't know huh. what do you think about that I think it's different for everybody totally I think you know it's interesting I was thinking about it when you were asking me earlier if I talk to people about it. And I didn't used to, I mean, like at work, similarly, people I worked with closely knew that I had medical issues because I had to work from home a lot because I was just in pain all the time. And I had to be at doctor's appointments a ton, you know, so I missed work for that. But I didn't really, my family, I talked to them all the time because I was trying to figure out what was going on and it was a whole process. But I didn't really talk to many other people about it. But actually, after I worked with my coach and after I quit my job and after I sort of like took a while to recover from surgery and and the burnout that I was going through and stuff, I actually started talking about it much more. Like not not the details of it. Like I think I think your point about people don't really want to hear like the details of your disease. I think there's definite validity to that, but for me at least there was an element of like this is just a fact of my life like it's something i'm dealing with it's something that i'm shaping my new career around in order to help others figure out how to deal with it and it was almost like taking the power back or something like being able to tell people and not being ashamed to tell them and not being nervous to tell them and not being like, but I'm okay, right after telling them, I think really sort of gave me, just for me again, like a level of confidence and just sort of like matter of factedness about it that I hadn't had before. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a weight off your shoulders because you're always carrying this around, like at least a little bit for me, like, oh, is something going to happen that 
I'm going to have to disclose or something going to happen that I'm going to look much sicker or whatever. It's not kind of an always at the back of your mind. So most of my, like basically all of my friends know, actually my, I told my kids, which was a big thing, which my, when did you tell them? I told them probably about three, two or three years ago. So I guess they were like six and three or four, probably like four and seven, maybe. I kind of tried to follow the guidelines from the National MS Society as to how I told my kids, but I didn't want to keep it secret. My aunt never told my cousin until she was like, I don't even know if she told her when she was 18. I think she told her when her symptoms started getting really bad. And I feel like she should have told her before. I just feel like it's good to be open with your children about what's going on. I don't want to hide anything from them. But it's difficult to tell a child. There were lots of questions and there still are lots of questions. They do see some of my symptoms sometimes. I try to do it in a really positive light that Mm -hmm. mommy does this. She does a really good job dealing with it. You guys can help her deal with it and that there's medications. There's always new science coming out. There might be a vaccine there. I try to keep it very positive and they took it really well. And then my daughter chose me to do as her, like, I don't know, report on. And she... Like her hero or whatever? Yeah, her hero report. Oh, that's so sweet. It was the best report. And she included in her report that mommy has multiple sclerosis. And she explained to her classmates what multiple sclerosis was. And so that that (laughs) cat was really out of the bag. But that was good. I mean, the whole school basically mostly I mean you know everybody pretty much knows after that right and I've told like a lot of friends and stuff and actually I just started on a sports team with some people and I don't know why I just told them but it's like you don't really I don't know what compels me to tell people when I do except for those things when I'm kind of backed into a corner but you know sometimes I just feel like sharing because it's a part of you it's part of your life right and if it's a yeah. close friend or a good relationship sometimes you just want to share it now sharing it in dating because I am single that is a whole, I have not figured out that quagmire. Yeah, that's tricky. What's your current approach? Uh, to not say anything, but I usually have to say that I have heat sensitivity because I really can't do hot things. But still, somebody hears about heat sensitivity and they, the usual reaction is, oh yeah, I don't really like hot weather that much either. Right. Like, well, no, it's different. When I get too hot, if I get really hot, I lose my bladder and my bowel function. I stop being able to see. I stop being able to talk. I stop being able to walk. So it's really important that I stay cool. But I don't tell that to people. And it's interesting because my cousin was like, well, maybe if you stopped thinking about MS so much, maybe you would just feel better. And uh-huh. like, I can't <laughs> stop thinking about it. I have to basically, because my body knows it has MS. And I have to like know where the bathroom is. Yeah. <laughs> I have to know what temperature it's going to be, where I'm going to be at. Like, you know, yeah, no, you're not, you're not making your symptoms worse by thinking about it. You're literally just living your life and working through the logistics that are necessary for you to live your life in a healthy way. It's so like, I have to always be like almost babying my body so that it works properly. It's such a miracle that our bodies work properly all the time. I mean, so many systems have to function. 
And yeah. a lot of my automatic functions don't function very well. So yeah, I have I to like, step in for them. Yeah. It's definitely uh, something that you realize like, I mean, health is just such a gift. And if you have, when you have a chronic illness, it's, you can still live a very, very, very full, wonderful life, right? Your life doesn't have to be about your chronic illness, but there are facts and logistics that you just have to deal with. And I, I think that's, it's, I don't know. I'm sorry that your cousin said that to you because that sounds, no, you she, know, again, I, not, not ill-intentioned, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. But it's just, I don't know what's the right way to say. It just shows sort of like the lack of understanding, I think. I mean, and to tell you the truth, I know that I did not understand and I would not and could not be able to understand. And it's interesting, even my parents, when I didn't live close to them, they fully didn't understand. Now I live closer to them and they started understanding. And it, because it's, yeah. it's a shame because like, I'm, I'm still like so good, like for the majority of the time, which is great. I'm doing really yeah. well. But yeah. then like, I have my symptoms pop up sure. and it's tough. It's tough. It's tough to deal with. But I mean, like, hopefully maybe people that listen to this, they can just, I don't know if it can help anyone. If you really positivity is the main thing. And it's sometimes it's so hard to stay positive, Yeah, but to stay positive and to allow yourself to grieve, you know, when you need to grieve what you've lost, yeah. but to still move forward in a positive way and to try to find, you know, find what works. You just mm-hmm. try to live and do what you can and enjoy your life while you're here. I mean, nobody knows how long their life on earth is going to be, but hopefully you can make it a better place. Hopefully you can have good friendships. Hopefully you can have great family and you enjoy it. I love that because, you know, at the beginning when you were talking about when you were in your 20s and you were just living your life and going out and working hard and burning the candle at both ends, but just living your life, it sounds honestly like you're you're doing the same thing just from a now from a very different perspective. And I think it's really beautiful that a decade plus after your diagnosis, your philosophy is, yeah, I'm living life, like being positive. And that's, that's all you can really do. All you can do. All you can do. Well, it was really special to talk to you. I'm so glad that I got the chance. It was really nice. I enjoyed this conversation and hopefully other people will find some kernels of advice or something to keep them going or keep them positive in this. I listen to this podcast. I don't know, but it was really enjoyable chatting with you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Catherine. I learned so much from her that I didn't know before. And I just really so appreciate her coming on and sharing her story and her experience. If you want to learn more about me or about coaching, you can find me at www.reviveandthrivecoach.com. You can email me at katie at reviveandthrivecoach.com or you can find me on Instagram at reviveandthrivecoaching. See you next time.